0: Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus,
1: His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie, and it's time for another Glad You Asked episode. We recently asked around on social media for you to submit any questions you might have, and you asked some really interesting ones. Yes. We're going to get as many as we can tonight, and we'll finish up next week. And by the way, thank you so much for your kind words of encouragement on social media. So many of you have reached out to us to let you know that you're listening and even taking notes. I never dreamed in my lifetime that someone would ever take notes on anything I would ever say. So (laughs) that's really special. And of course, it's always encouraging when you share our episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And when you leave us great reviews on your favorite podcast platforms, those things may seem small to you. But trust me when I say it's very meaningful, important, and encouraging to us. You're ministering to us, and we really appreciate it. We do. So let's go ahead and get things kicked off with our first question. Amy? Well, it was hard to pick through all of these, but um, again, we're going to do
0: these in two parts. So <laughs> we'll, we'll get through as many as we can. And the first question was sent anonymously uh, on Facebook and, and uh, she writes, we have a small group of four ladies who meet in a Zoom prayer group together. How cool is that? Uh, but one of them, she says, has a tendency to listen to false teachers. I don't believe this woman who listens to these teachers is unsaved, just lacks discernment. Even when confronted, she defends her position on these teachers. Is this someone who should be asked to leave an online prayer group? We are all in different churches, so there's really not one Pastor, we could bring this to, Uh, most of us have moved all over the country, so we continue to meet over Zoom. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate this question. It's a great question. And how cool is it that you're meeting uh, from all parts of the world? I I kind of feel like, you know, Michelle and I meet, you know, here we are north and south. (laughs) So it's really nice to have uh, sisters in Christ that you can meet with. Um, And and ladies, I did confirm with uh, Anonymous, I'll call her, uh, that uh, of the four meeting on Zoom, uh, just one of them. Is clinging to the false teacher or teachers. uh, The other three seem to be discerning. And uh, it sounds like when presented with the facts about a teacher's false teaching, this fourth lady uh, continues to defend that teacher. So, I, you know, and I, I will say it's really hard to diagnose exactly what's going on because we don't know, you know, everything about uh, the situation or the group, the dynamics. Um, but just on the outset, this one sounds a little rebellious to me. And I know many well-meaning women like her. Uh, you know, I can, I can point to a few that I know personally. And so when you do. For instance, an entire presentation comparing the red flags with scripture. You know, you can, you can go to all these lengths. You can have all the scriptures lined up and, and uh, all the, you know, the quotes from the false teacher, the teachings, whatever it is. There are still going to be some who will say, well, you just don't like, you know, fill in the blank, whoever it is. And that can be very frustrating when you've gone to all that effort to make your case. And of course, it's not a matter of whether we think this teacher is charming or friendly or helpful once in a while. But the bottom line is false teachers are false teachers. And God tells us exactly what we must do. In this case, mark and avoid the false teacher. So for Anonymous, the question becomes, now what? Well, before we get to that, the what, the next steps, let's look at the why. Um, And we don't really know why, but for whatever reason, this lady who is deceived is still very willing to participate in her own deception, it sounds like. It sounds like she likes it. Maybe she thinks she's going against the grain. She has something to prove in the group. I mean, we don't know. Maybe her sense of justice has kicked in, and she thinks she needs to defend this poor, helpless, false teacher. Who knows? Well, only God does, right? And sometimes he does cause spiritual blindness to happen. Let's take a look at a couple of scriptures. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 3 and 4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, we hope that this lady uh, who is deceived is not perishing. We don't know, but we hope that she's saved and um, just not willing to learn yet. But let's look at another verse. John 1240 says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, here in this quote, uh, this is a direct quote from Jesus himself, who is quoting Isaiah, and he is directing his comments in this verse to the Pharisees, who were religious, but spiritually blind. They thought they were saved, but boy, they they really were off. So, back to how God is dealing with your friend, Anonymous. Uh, You know, the truth is, she is blind, whether it's because, you know, the time is not right for God to lift those blinders yet in his schedule, his divine schedule, that's his, or whatever the reason, his timing in this is for his glory alone. And it's not up to us to make the case and argue like lawyers in a courtroom. It is the Holy Spirit's job to enlighten uh, these deceived people. So what can we do about this? I mean, we've already made our case. We've already, you know, brought this up. Well, if we're all studying the Word together and praying together, Anonymous, I would keep doing that if you're so inclined. Keep sharing the truth. She needs it, clearly, Uh, not just as it pertains to false teachings, but about everything. So when you pray, you know, you you need to keep doing that. And make your walk in this Zoom gathering as worthy as it depends on you by showing her love and kindness and of course scripture. And if she brings up the false teacher during one of your meetings, just say, "Well, you know how we feel about false teachers, so let's not bring her into this discussion." But do pray for her and pray with her and ask God now this is in your own prayer time. You'll you you don't want to be, you know, directing your prayers at her. You're praying to God, right? So in your own prayer time, though, ask God to soften her heart toward him. And if need be, and and here's kind of a sticky thing, ask him to soften your heart too towards her and give you the wisdom for each and every Zoom meeting that you're going to have with her.
1: And that's what I, I think is a good, wise way to go, Michelle. Do you have anything you'd like to add? I completely agree with your advice, Amy. I think that's very, very wise counsel that you gave her. The only thing that I would add in there is do a good study of John chapter 10 to Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do a good study of John chapter 10. And You know, we like Amy said, we hope that your friend is actually saved, but we need to consider what John 10 says, that Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice and they will not follow the voice of a stranger. In other words, they will not follow false teachers. Now, Even, even saved people can make mistakes and be, you know, not understand that someone is a false teacher and wander a few steps away from the shepherd, but they will always hear their shepherd calling them back and saying, you're following the voice of a stranger and you need to come back to the fold. And so, you know, we want to be careful about Assuming that she's not saved, but we also want to be careful about assuming that she is saved. So I would, um, you know, I would encourage you when when the four of you do have conversations and things, and maybe you do need to add maybe a little bit of study of scripture into the prayer time, the prayer group. Um, I would encourage you to talk about the gospel, to discuss the gospel, you know, from beginning to end, like you're presenting the gospel uh, to her or to someone else, or discuss y'all's understanding of the gospel, things like that. Because if you do that, at least you can know you have carried out your responsibility to share the gospel in case she is lost. And if she's not lost, yeah. she shouldn't mind you sharing the gospel. I mean, I'm, I'm saved. Amy's saved. We love hearing the gospel no matter what. And, and also I would just, you know, I would, if somebody shared the gospel with me because they were concerned about me, I would appreciate that because I would know they were doing it out of love for me and they were probably scared to do it so that would mean a lot to me yeah um, so that was that would be the only thing that I would add give give John 10 a good study and uh, and and just take that into consideration and talk about the gospel a lot <laughs> <laughs> good advice all right well next I've got a few quickie questions and then a little bit longer one so the first one is uh, Miyoshi asked this I believe she asked this on Facebook. She said, How would you approach a woman at church who wears somewhat inappropriate clothing? For example, a t-shirt from a bar or bare shoulders. Miyoshi, that's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. We tackled this question in uh, in our three part series on modesty last year. We answered the question of how to deal with modesty issues at church in part three, but each episode builds on the previous episode. So we would recommend that you and all of our listeners start with episode one in our modesty series and listen to all three episodes in order. And of course, we'll put the link in the show notes for you um, so that you can do that. And then. Uh, once you've done that, make an appointment with your pastor to discuss your concerns and to get his input and advice on the best way to handle the situation in your particular church. So I hope that'll help you, Mioshi. All right, our next question is from an Instagram DM, and it just says, how to find a biblical church and how also to serve in the church? Question mark. So for this one, I'm going to, if anybody else has the same question as this listener, I'm going to direct you over to my blog, michellelesley.com. Go to the blue menu bar at the top of the page and click on Searching for a New Church. I've got tons of great information on finding a biblical church there from from all of the doctrinal issues you should look for to how to leave your old church, tons of church search engines, yes, including the Master Seminary search engine and Founders and G3, <laughs> and uh, it even covers church planting, so um, so I would really recommend that that uh, resource to you. And I've got a great resource for serving in the church, too. It's called the Servanthood Survey, and it's a biblical alternative to spiritual gifts tests. It takes you through a brief Bible study on a few passages that pertain to um, to serving in the church. And then after you've worked through that, you'll need to talk to your pastor or elders and find out what positions of service are available in your church right now and then prayerfully consider which one the Lord is leading you to. All right. And finally, in this this little segment here, we've got a related question to that previous question from Beth on Facebook. And she says, what questions do you recommend asking a pastor at a new church you have visited and are considering attending regularly? So, Beth, I want to just clarify your question just a tiny little bit before I answer. You might consider, a t- quote, attending regularly, like you said in your question, and also church membership to be the same thing. And honestly, the two should be inseparable, but technically, attending regularly and church membership are not the same thing. So for all of our listeners, I just want to be really clear. You absolutely should attend church regularly. But you should do so as a church member. There are a variety of biblical reasons for church membership, which we won't get into right now because that wasn't Beth's question. But once you find a good, solid church, you need to both join it and attend regularly. So, Beth, I'm going to send you over to that same link to Searching for a New Church and direct you to the section of that page titled What to Look for in a Church. I've got a bunch of resources there, one of which is Amy's excellent list of bi- basic biblical doctrinal questions, and you should be able to find a lot of those the answers to those questions on the church's website on their Statement of Faith page. Um, you need to make sure the church has a biblical view of the Trinity that God is one God who exists in three persons, and they need to have a biblical view of each person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, that would be Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. They need to have a biblical view of Scripture, that every word of it is breathed out by God and that it is our authority for life as Christians and for the church. You want to make sure they have a biblical doctrine of sin and salvation and the church and a bunch of other things that you'll find spelled out in detail, complete with scripture references at that link. But there are a few other questions that I'd also recommend you ask that will tell you a lot about the church, maybe even more so and and more quickly uh, than those aforementioned questions about specific doctrines, because here's the reason. A lot of churches know how to give the right answers on those doctrinal questions, but unfortunately, they don't always practice what their statement of faith preaches, so to speak. But these questions will tell you a lot faster what they really believe and practice. So here's, here's the first one to ask the, the pastor when you meet with him. Which well-known Christian authors have had the biggest impact on your life, beliefs, and ministry? Now, that's going to tell you a lot about specifically where that pastor is theologically. For example, if he says John MacArthur and Steve Lawson, great. If he says Joel Osteen and Andy Stanley, run and and be sure be sure also a little hint on that question. Be sure you say well known Christian authors because um, I asked a pastor this question one time without saying well known, and he said Joe Blow from thirty five member Baptist church in Podunk, Louisiana. I mean that's that's great, and it does, you know a pastor doesn't have to have a huge church and a huge ministry to be a great pastor, but. You know, I have no idea who that is or what his theology is, so that doesn't help on this particular question. So well-known Christian authors that have had the biggest impact on your life, beliefs, and ministry. All right, second question you can ask the pastor. In this church, are women allowed to preach the Sunday sermon, teach or co-teach co-ed adult Sunday school or Bible study classes, small groups, etc.? Are women allowed to hold any position of authority over men? So the question you're looking for here is a kind yet emphatic no. (laughs) You want him to say no to that question. If he says yes, you need to stop your search right there and go find another church. All right, next question. What are some books your women's ministry has used for women's Bible study classes? And who are the authors? So this is a little bit of a trick question, but not really. You're hoping, he says, the women who teach our women's Bible study classes are skilled at rightly handling scripture, and they teach straight from the Bible. So hope hopefully he'll say that. Of course, if he says they use Naomi's Table studies or Michelle Leslie's studies or Susan Heck's studies, that would be fine too. But if (laughs) you hear, yeah, if you hear Beth Moore, Priscilla Schreier, Lisa Turkhurst, Lisa Harper, Jackie Hill Perry, and so on, run. Yes. All right. And finally. Finally, does this church ever use music by Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation, or other heretical sources? If he gives an unashamed yes, leave, okay, because that is reflective of deeper theological problems you can't see on the surface. If he says something like, well, only sometimes, or only the ones with biblical lyrics, Personally, that would still be a deal breaker for me because it tells you that that pastor is undiscerning or he has a low view of worship or both. But if that's the only questionable answer he gives you and everything else is right on the money biblically and you don't have any other choice for a better church that doesn't use music from heretical sources, going to that church is at least better than not going to church at all. Amy, any other questions in that vein that you would suggest? Maybe questions that aren't specifically doctrinal in nature?
0: No, I mean, you hit all the big ones. Uh, you know, I, I thought about, you know, beyond, uh, though, I mean, the, the, you did great on the, the big ones. I thought, well, you know, how do you help your members grow? What is discipleship like at your church? What teaching materials do you use generally? Um, not just in women's ministries. You know, where does, where do those come from? How do you research speakers and teachers? Or, um, when someone expresses a concern about a teaching, what is your, how do you handle it? How do you proceed? How do you, uh, how do you CERN, uh, good teaching from bad teaching. Do you use the internet to look up things? You know that kind of thing. But um, I really liked what in uh, earlier on you had talked about. You know, going to church and kind of judging by what you find on their website. And uh, I would, I would caution listeners too, like you said, to really watch out for seemingly doctrinal sound uh, statements of faith because uh believe it or not even um churches like Lakewood Church where Joel Olstein teaches at least at one time had what sounded like a doctrinally sound statement of faith so i played a little uh, fun little game one time a little contest on my blog i years ago i i took some statements of faith from well-known heretical churches and put them out there and uh you know guess who this is without googling it i just did some screenshots and uh i it it caught a lot of people off guard because who knew that, you know, these doctrinal statements of faith are just out there. They can be cut and paste from anywhere. So uh, again, uh, make sure they're walking the walk and talking the talk when you go and um, attend these churches. But Make sure you really take the time to listen to the sermons and uh, and just really, you know, don't make any snap decisions, but visit for a while and, uh, you know, then let that grow into membership if, if all seems clear. All right. Second question for me anyway. Uh, This one comes from Laura on Facebook, and she says, Can you uh, talk about pietism? Also, how do you speak the truth in love online when talking about Jesus and you get mockers? Is that when you don't even engage, or do you still give them the gospel? And related to the pietism question, what exactly is fruit? Would fruit be taking care of parents or being a prayerful wife? I'm fruit checking myself, but I'm not sure I see it. That's why I'm asking about pietism. All right, there's a lot to unpack here, Laura. Thank you so much, though, for uh, writing all this to us. Uh, first of all, you're probably wondering, listeners, what is Pietism? Well, uh, isn't it just you know people acting pious? Well, sort of. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Pietism is a movement within Christianity that really focuses on our individual holiness and a consistent Christian life with you know d- different Christian uh, disciplines. Well, what's wrong with that? It sounds holy. Well, it, and it's it's really interesting, because we are called to be holy. Um, But the movement itself, the Pietism with a capital P, started in about the 1400s. And eventually, uh, it kind of grew into, you know, Lutheranism, Swedish Lutheranism uh, adopted these, uh, these practices. And Right now, it's, it's kind of morphed into the Methodist movement. Um, interesting stuff. I'm going to put a link in our show notes so that you can read more about the history of it. But basically, uh, the pietism movement is about doing good works to produce fruit. And the early pietists, uh, encouraged personal and small group Bible study, involvement in church leadership by laymen and so forth, so that it would result in visible fruits of good works. And we, we must remember that it is not our good works that cause good fruit, but it's the Holy Spirit and our faith in God that produces fruit. Good works can be done by Anyone, really, um atheists, anybody, whether they're saved or not, taking care of your parents to the glory of the Lord is a wonderful thing. And being a prayerful wife is also a very wonderful thing. I'm glad you're doing that, Laura. Um, But we do want to be careful that we don't get into the habit of thinking that if I do this, then God will do that or he'll produce this in me. Now, um one website that I like to follow is called Monergism, and I'm going to put a link in our website, but it says basically that the danger of pietism is a lack of full biblical assurance based upon the objective promises of God. I'm going to read a, a paragraph, if you don't mind, from Monergism on pietism, and it says this. <clears throat> Though we all ought to wholeheartedly embrace and emphasize the importance of Christian piety, we must remember that piety is built on doctrine. Once doctrinal beliefs disappear, piety is emptied of the gospel and becomes a form without content. So we must distinguish between piety and pietism. Now, the former is the result or consequence outworking of one's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The latter is usually used as a pretense of righteousness, erroneously thinking our work might earn merit before a holy God. When we recognize, however, that God demands holy perfection, we behold our spiritual bankruptcy and so we look to Christ for mercy. Our work is then accepted in Christ, but in no sense Meritus. So that's what, uh, that's from monergism. And I, I really like that paragraph because it, it kind of tells you the little, little bit of just a, a nuance, a little bit of difference in our thinking about it. And of course, uh, fruit of the spirit from Galatians 5.22, The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. And Laura, as for mockers, that's going to happen, right? So mockers going to mock, and uh, especially on the internet, <laughs> you find that people have a lot more courage to mock God uh, when they're sitting behind their keyboard. Um, I, I would just say don't throw your pearls before swine, and don't spend time engaging in fruitless arguments with mockers and scoffers. But when you do share the truth, and I'm glad you're doing that, uh, you know, always do it in kindness as far as it is up to you. Um,
1: any thoughts on that, Michelle? I think that's great. I completely agree. Um I, I think what if what I'm understanding you to say about Pietism is correct, they we want to put our faith in what scripture says about our yes. salvation, not to look at our works and put our faith in, am I doing enough good works? Am I bearing enough yeah. fruit? But to, you know, it's important to bear fruit, which the spirit is the one who produces the fruit in you. And it is important to obey God and obey his word and, um, and to do the good works that he has ordained for, for you for, from the beginning of the world, from the foundations of the world. Um, but our faith needs to be in what scripture says, what God says about whether or not we're saved, whether, you know, how to be saved and, and things like this. So, because everything else is really subjective, but God's word is, is objective and we can a hundred percent believe what God's word says about us and our salvation and him and all of those things. So put your faith in what scripture says, not looking at your own works. Okay. Amen. All right. Our next question is from Kirsten on Instagram, and she says, Did Jesus ever practice Judaism? I'm assuming he might have, as Mary and Joseph probably raised him that way. Did he stop when he was baptized? When did the switch take place, and where in Scripture does it tell us that for Hmm. sure? It's a very interesting question, certainly one I had never Thought of before. So let's take a look at this. Thank you for asking that question, Kirsten. There's probably other people out there wondering the same thing. All right. So before I answer the question biblically, sometimes, you know, we can figure these things out if we just uh, sort of think through them logically. So let me help us do that for just a sec. If Jesus wasn't a practicing Jew, what religion would he have been? Well, We know he wasn't a Christian because the foundation of Christianity is built on Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, Christianity came after Jesus' time on earth, so we know he he wasn't a Christian. And this is the same reason we know that he wasn't non-religious. His whole mission in life was to lay the groundwork for Christianity. We also know that he wasn't Muslim or Mormon or Hindu or Buddhist or Jehovah's Witness or any of the other pagan religions um, you know, of today or since his time or in the Old Testament or anything like that, because A, a lot of those religions that I just named weren't even invented until after his time on earth, and then B, all of those religions are idolatrous, and Jesus was the perfect, sinless son of God. He would never have committed idolatry. So what's left? Well, Judaism, the the precursor, if you will, of Christianity. Now, there's really, I think I understand why she asked this question. There's really no biblical category for a non practicing Jew, the way we understand that term today, like in America, if we run into someone who was born Jewish, but is not a practicing Jew, that really wasn't a thing in scripture. There may have been some people like that, but scripture assumes, you know, the Old Testament assumes that if you're born a Jew, you're supposed to be practicing. Jewish lineage and practice are inseparable in scripture. Matthew 1 traces Jesus' genealogy back through Judaism to Abraham, and his genealogy in Luke 3 goes all the way back to Adam. Jesus was Jewish by lineage and so he lived his entire earthly life as a practicing Jew. And I was looking at this in scripture and I just thought it was so neat how, uh, how scripture sort of bookends Jesus' life, uh, in Judaism from all of, from his birth all the way to his death. Uh, In Matthew 2, 1 through 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east when it rose and have come to worship him. And then when Jesus was on the cross just before his death, Matthew twenty seven thirty seven says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So from his birth to his death, Jesus was a, a Jew by lineage, and he was a Jew by practice. And in fact, it's not just that Jesus was Jewish. He had to be Jewish. He had to perfectly fulfill and keep God's moral, civil, and ceremonial law that God had given only to his people, the Jews. And Jesus did keep all of those laws and ceremonies. If you'll read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that very, very clearly. Here are just a few examples of Jesus practicing Judaism. Luke 2, 22 to 24. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, this is talking about when Mary and Joseph were presenting Jesus at the temple, it says they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Matthew five seventeen. do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Jesus said. Then in Matthew 8, uh, Matthew 8, 4, Jesus heals a leper and tells him this, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he's. He's abiding by the laws of Judaism there. Matthew 17, 24 through 27, we see Jesus paying the temple tax. John 2, 23 is just one of the several mentions of Jesus keeping Passover. And of course, we also know that the Last Supper was a Passover meal. John 7, Jesus participates in the Feast of Booths. That's an Old Testament Jewish uh, festival. So Kirsten, I would really encourage you and all of our listeners to study scripture about this. Study the Gospels, study the book of Hebrews, and it will really inform your studies of all those books if you'll study through the whole Old Testament. So, so you can see the proof in the Gospels and Hebrews that Jesus really did practice Judaism. In fact, he practiced it better than anybody else ever did because he's the only one who ever practiced it perfect. Amy, anything else that you'd like to share on this? Well, I just love that question. It it uh, really makes you
0: think. So yeah. thank you for asking that. Um, I, and I would say, too, the first thing that popped into my mind when I, I heard you read it, Michelle, was uh, that verse you read in Matthew 517 about how Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law uh, and the prophets. In other words, He his purpose wasn't to abrogate the word or dissolve it or render it invalid or anything like that. He fulfilled it, which is so cool to think about. So uh, I I just love that question. Um, really appreciate all your answers as well. Um, all right, let's get to the third question that I have here, and uh, this is from Melissa, I believe it's on Facebook, and she wants to know what do you think of the Passion Conference. From what I understand, it's a Southern Baptist thing, but they don't don't they have a Word of Faith and Hillsong folks there? It doesn't seem biblical. But a local uh, Southern Baptist Convention church sent their college kids there. Any thoughts? Oh, yeah, I have some thoughts. <laughs> so, um, and I think I wish the people sending children and young adults to these um, stadium-filled youth events, these conferences, would take the time to at least do a Google search to see what these kids are going to be uh, learning and, and experiencing at these conferences, Um I will say that I've done a quite a bit of research and reporting on passion, and this is a conference holded by uh, hosted by Louis Giglio he's the pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta um If you haven't heard of that one, it's one of the big mega churches there in Atlanta. Passion is not just a conference, it's a movement, according to Giglio, and uh, not a very good one, I'm afraid. It is an ecumenical affiliation of some of the biggest false teachers out there who have ever been associated with the body of Christ. Associated, I say loosely. Um, and that sounds rather harsh, but believe me, you know the Apostle John admonishes us to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why does he do that? Well, because... Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And um, you could read more about that in 1 John 4, uh, right at uh, verse 1 there. And this includes testing the teaching of our Christian leaders to see if what they teach is biblical. Red flags about Louis Giglio and the others associated with that conference began popping up, for me at least in 2013. And even before that, Giglio promotes and teaches something called the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith Movement's dangerous little god theology. In fact, we're all little gods. We can create things, we can speak things into existence, and so on and so forth. So Um, Again, we'll put some things in the show notes about that. Um, He is widely recognized among his peers as an apostle, with a big A, by the way, not a sent one apostle little A, but a big one, like you know, like the the real apostles in the Bible that we read about. Um, and he's recognized by the Apostolic Network Hillsong. Um, and so that's just a few concerns. There are many more. Again, more links in the show notes. But yeah, I'd I, I'd be very concerned if I knew that somebody in my neighborhood or my church or the church down the street was sending children there. What do you think, Michelle?
1: Yeah um, another aspect of of that conference is that there are, there are women teaching this is a conference for um, college age students if I'm yes. remembering correctly and so these are young, adult men with uh with women who are preaching to them. Beth Moore has preached Correct. there, yeah. Christine Kane has preached there. There are several other women that have preached there and I believe Louis Giglio lets women preach at his church too. I know Beth Moore preached yeah. there at least once years ago. I haven't really kept up with with this uh you know with Passion or anything, but um except every year I see who all has taught at Passion and it's 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 a it's usually a bunch of false teachers and John Piper you know, that's, that's usually what yeah, the slave speaker says. Well, anyway, I don't know. And that's, that's a whole nother can of worms that didn't have anything to do with her question really, but yeah, um, no worms tonight. I'm yeah. sorry to say that. <laughs> But really to the, to the point you were making about, about parents, um, you know, these are, this is a conference for young adults. So you, you may not have as much, uh, influence over your college-age students. They may not be living at home. Uh, they may be out on their own. But if you do still have some influence over your kids that are that age, even though they are young adults, um, do some research before you j- – and if if your church is is going to take the youth, you know, your, your teenage kids to this, um, definitely do some research before – whenever your church says, hey, we've got a conference or a retreat or whatever that we're mm-hmm. going to take the kids to – Don't just trust that your pastor and your leadership have done their research. I mean, some, some pastors you can, you can trust like that. Most pastors you can't because they just get somebody who is well-known and available and dynamic and that the kids will like and that's that's who they go with. Or they just trust the conference organization, that the people that the conference organization puts on stage are doctrinally sound. You need yeah. to do your research. These are your kids. You are responsible for them. So do right. your research. And then just one other thing that I wanted to mention, she asked in her question something about, she said, I understand it's a Southern Baptist, quote, thing. Um, I just wanted to say there, the Southern Baptist Convention has a lot of problems, but this particular one is not a problem with the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, there, there are a lot of Southern Baptist churches who send their kids to Passion, uh, or who participate, you know, take a trip and go to Passion or whatever, but it is not, um, it is not affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention in any way. It's not an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not, you know, Official Southern Baptist Convention Conference, or anything like that, so i just I just wanted to clarify that we'll we 'll take the knocks that belong to us, but <laughs> please don't add any more that we don 't need <laughs> so good point
0: michelle i i hadn't uh, thought about addressing that part of it, but i'm glad you did and ladies, as you 're researching these conferences that maybe your church is thinking about going to and taking the youths to. Be sure to speak up if you find red flags about any conference that you find out, because if you, your silence means that those kids are going to experience things. Even if your kids don't go, other children will go from your church, and you know what? You need to be there to disciple them as well, at least by bringing those concerns up to, uh, to your pastor or to your leaders.
1: Yes. And we did an episode on how to talk to your church leaders about false teachers. It's been a while back, but we'll dig that up and put the link for that in the show notes in case you need it. So, so, okay. All right. Our last question tonight is from a, a uh, direct message sent to me on Instagram. And here's what this person says. She says, I had a Bible study leader say to replace Moses's name with our names in Joshua 11:15." 15. And she quotes it. She says, Just as the Lord commanded, and I'll just fill in my name uh, for an example. She, just as the Lord commanded Michelle, his servant, so Michelle did. She left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded her. Okay, so she says, My Bible study leader said to put it on a sticky note and refer to it often. And then she said, are we leaving things undone that the Lord has commanded us to do? A red flag went up in my heart. Is this okay to do? I know you've addressed this, but I can't seem to find it. Um, I have ad- I th- I think this was sent to my personal Instagram account. So I think she was talking about whether I've addressed it on the blog or not. I have addressed a similar question before in a mailbag article on my blog. And again, we'll put the link for that in the show notes for you if you want to read it. That question was really more about a verse where somebody had changed male pronouns to female pronouns instead of inserting your name. But it still applies here because, you know, they're changing the male pronouns to female pronouns. So. Right. Wow. (laughs) We've got all kinds of pronoun issues these days, don't we? All right. So, yeah. And I want to extend as much grace to your Bible study leader as I can. Um, You know, I think she wants you to apply scripture to your life and to obey it. And that is right and good and important. But this is not the way to do it. Um, Even though I'm sure she didn't mean to, this is a mishandling of and irreverence for God's high and holy word. First, The first thing we're going to do is just we're going to compare the actual verse phrase by phrase with the so-called verse she gave you to insert your name into. Okay, so here's the actual Joshua 1115 in its entirety. This is what it says. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So let's see if this Bible study teacher's verse matches up. All right, let's take that first phrase. The real verse says, Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, okay, and that much of the Bible study leader's verse says, Just as the Lord commanded Michelle, his servant. Okay, so they're pretty much the same, except that you've switched out Moses's name for your name. All right, next phrase. The real verse says, so Moses commanded Joshua. Now, the Bible study leader's verse doesn't contain that phrase. She has completely deleted that part of the verse. Okay, next phrase. The real verse says, and so Joshua did. Okay, so the Bible study leaders version of that verse, part of the verse would be, so Michelle did. Okay, so now if you're if you're paying attention, you might want to grab your Bible and look at this as I'm as I'm saying these things because it's a little confusing. But now instead of replacing Moses with your name, she's having you replace Joshua with your name. So you're subbing in for Moses and Joshua in, in her version of the verse. All right, next. The real verse says, he, that's Joshua, left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Bible study leader's version of that verse says, she left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded her. Okay, so the first she is replacing Joshua, and then that her at the end is replacing Moses. Listeners, do you see what I'm trying to demonstrate here? The, the Bible study leader has not only ripped this verse totally out of context, just read all of Joshua 11 and you'll clearly see that. You'll see what I mean. So she hasn't just ripped this verse out of context. She also stuck this verse in the Cuisinart and completely mangled it in order to use it as a means to her own end. Do you see how arrogant and self-centered and man-centered and idolatrous that is to think that we sinful, puny little humans have the right to take the words from the very lips of the God of this universe and just flippantly cut and paste and alter them because we want to, and we have this agenda that we want to accomplish, and that's just the most expedient way to do it. And we never stop to think about who God is or who we are in relationship to him and what he thinks about us doing something like that. You want a little hint about what God thinks about people changing his word? Listen to what he says just about changing the book of Revelation in Revelation twenty-two, eighteen 18 through 19. Listen to this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, I know in her heart, the Bible study leader probably had the best of intentions. But that only goes to show how stealthily things like pride and rebellion can sneak into our hearts to the point that we don't even realize what we're doing, and the statement our actions are making. We don't have the right to change God's word, no matter how noble we think our purpose is. When we do something like that, you know what it says? It says God's word isn't good enough. God didn't get it right. God's word doesn't say what I want it to say. So I, a sinful human being, have to fix what God got wrong. Think about that. Let it sink in. That's what it says. Who on earth do we think we are to alter or adulterate God's written word so that it's more pleasing to us? God's word isn't Burger King where you get to have it your way. God's word isn't a choose-your-own-adventure book where you get to pick what happens next or how the story ends. We submit to God's word, not the other way around. If your Bible study teacher wanted to teach you that it's important to obey God's word, there are plenty of other verses that say exactly that to you as a Christian. No mangling required, but no man or woman has the right to alter God's word. Amy, any further thoughts on that one? Whew. Well, yeah, I, um, I, I'm, um, (laughs) that
0: you, what you said was perfect, Michelle, but I will say too that I also years ago sat under that same kind of teaching in a woman's Bible study where, uh, I was encouraged to put my name in the promises of God so that it would be personal to me. And, uh, and I look at where that church is now and it's not in a good place. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I would encourage people to just, let's just stick with scripture and let it speak for itself. Uh, I do have a thought on the follow up question that the Bible study teacher asked, uh, on the sticky note, uh, because she said, um, you know, after you wrote your name in place of Moses and Joshua, the Bible study teacher asked, are we leaving things undone that the Lord has commanded us to do? And I thought about that thinking what a burden that is. Yeah, of course we're, we're leaving things Undone that the Lord has commanded us to do. Um, there's no way that we can finish them all because the Lord has called us to be perfect and holy. And he has called us to behave in a righteous way so that, uh, you know, we can't do it on our own. Uh, so instead of feeling the guilt, we need to cry out to the Lord for help in those areas. And so I, I just thought that that was an, an unnecessary burden and a question that really elicits a lot of guilt, uh, rather than the freedom to know that the Lord is our Savior, and and we can depend on Him for when we need help. So, uh, just a thought there on that. And I don't know. What, what do you think about that?
1: Amen to that. I mean, we there are certainly areas. Certainly, to use her words, there are things we are leaving undone. There are areas where we're disobedient where we need to be obedient to scripture. And it's perfectly fine to ask the Lord to reveal those areas to you and to convict you of those areas of disobedience and, and to give you wisdom and to help you resist temptation and all that. We should be doing that. But we do need to remember that we are never going to be perfect this side of glory. And we, you know, the Lord is there to help us grow in holiness and to grow towards Christ likeness. But there is mercy and grace for when we fail and when we run back to Him in repentance and faith in Him, He is always there with open arms to cleanse us and to make us right with Him again. So absolutely, you know, be in prayer. And if you want to write something down on a sticky note and put it on your mirror, copy a verse word for word out of the Bible, out of a good translation, please. (laughs) Don't, Don't copy something down that somebody else made up. You want to memorize God's Word and keep God's Word in your heart, not your Bible study leaders verse that she made up so we we want to have God's word in our heart amen well that is going to do it for this episode of a word fitly spoken we will get to more of your questions next week don't forget to leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform and stop by a word fitly spoken. life to support us on PayPal or patreon or to have Amy and me come and speak at your next women's event we would love to do that uh, we would. <laughs> Yes. And and we hope that this program blessed
0: you. And uh, remember, the show notes today are going to be packed full of resources you're going to want to check out. And until next time, turn to scripture for the answers to all of your questions and walk worthy.